Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Uh, we have a special guest this week. Uh, we've heard from some of the leading managers and strategists for some of the top Democrats, but uh, we're going to take a little detour this week. We have impeachment going on. It's happened rarely in our country's history. We've obviously got both impeachment uh, and a presidential election, which we're spending a lot of time talking about in front of us. And whoever comes out of this primary is going to be facing Donald Trump. Uh, we just had another debate this week. And I was thinking, who has a unique perspective on all those issues? And, and really, there's only one person in the country, I think, and that's Hillary Clinton. She's the only person to have run against Donald Trump. She was deeply involved in two impeachment proceedings uh, and has uh, excelled at debates both in the 2008 cycle and in, in 2016. So I wanted to spend a little time with her, um, given where we are in the race, uh, with impeachment looming over that in the country, um, and just get her sense of what we're going to need to be Donald Trump uh, in 2020 from her very unique vantage point, how impeachment may unfold, and some lessons for the Democrats in terms of how they handle it um, based on uh, both the Nixon and Clinton impeachments. Is there any hope to get uh, any Republican support for impeachment? And, you know, from her perspective, what's it like to be a candidate running for president to prepare for debates and uh, how meaningful they are? So we're going to talk to her about all of that in addition to her thoughts on foreign interference, both as related to her race in 16 and sadly what we have to look forward to in 2020. So we couldn't be more excited if Hillary Clinton is our guest today. Hillary Clinton, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, David. It's great to talk to you again. We're going to talk about your book in a little bit mm -hmm. uh, that you've written with Chelsea, an amazing book. But you served on the House Judiciary Committee early in your career. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes it's overstated because Republicans largely hung in there with Nixon. But still, seven of the 17 members of the House Judiciary Committee ultimately voted for at least one article of impeachment. Do you think something like that's possible today, the partisan wall breaking? And if so, how? I've thought a lot about that question because you're right that not only did Republican members of the House Judiciary Committee vote for at least one of the articles of impeachment and one voted for all three, but after the vote was taken in the committee, a small group of Republican senators came to the White House to basically tell Richard Nixon he should resign. And I think that was a very important example of putting country over party. They didn't do it with a flourish. They obviously didn't have social media in those days, but they assessed the situation and they concluded that President Nixon had committed high crimes and misdemeanors and for the good of the country should leave. I don't see yet people in uh, the House who are open to that other than maybe a, a Congressman Amish from Michigan, maybe a Will Hurd who's not running again from Texas, maybe a few of the others. 
like John Chimkus from Illinois, who just announced that he was not running again and would not support Trump. So maybe when all is said and done and the House, I hope, proceeds in a deliberative, thoughtful, careful, serious manner, which they seem to be doing, there will be Republicans who come on board. And then it will be up to Republican senators, uh, some of whom are up for re-election. Maybe they will be willing to actually look at the evidence. So we're going to have to wait. And I don't think we would have predicted back in 74 how many Republican votes we would have gotten at this point in the process. Uh, So I don't want to prejudge either way. Right. So you were also an eyewitness to another ill-advised impeachment attempt uh, aimed at President Clinton. I'm curious, when you look at, and I think there were distinctions between how those in charge of those proceedings handled them, what advice should House Democrats take from both of those in terms of what's the best way forward to um, not just get the facts out, but do this in a way that may allow the permission structure for some Republicans to support ultimate impeachment if that's where the facts lead? Well, I don't think you could have two more contrasting examples. From my perspective as a young lawyer working on a staff that included both Republican and Democratic lawyers, including Bill Weld, uh, who is now currently challenging uh, Trump in the Republican primary, former governor of Massachusetts, we were told do not jump to conclusions. We are going to follow the evidence and then apply the law and the Constitution. And we were also told we'd be fired if there was one leak, one word that came out of our proceedings. And that was the case because John Doerr, the chief lawyer, Republican, but in you know came into the Justice Department under Eisenhower, stayed under Kennedy, became a champion of civil rights. And you know he was a lawyer's lawyer. And We all lived in fear of him, and we were working 18, 20-hour days to try to gather all this evidence. And I don't think anyone could, with a straight face, criticize that process because it was done so carefully. Uh, So when the articles of impeachment were presented, they were backed up by literally reams of, of evidence. Obviously, in the late 90s, it was a partisan gotcha campaign. And I I remember after the 98 election, when Democrats did so well, Newt Gingrich talking to White House staff, including the then chief of staff, uh, Erskine Bowles, who said, "Okay, fine, you know what, we just beat you. We're fine. Let's just get back to doing the country's business. You don't need to follow through on this impeachment process. And Gingrich basically said, we're going to do it because we want to do it. I mean, it was it, it was not even an effort to disguise the motivations. And, of course, Gingrich got pushed out, and uh, we all know there was a lot of other stuff happening. So that was nothing but a, a partisan effort to take down a president. And I think the Democrats, especially those who lived through it, like Speaker Pelosi, have worked really hard to avoid any hint of that. It's one of the reasons— Uh, why she resisted calls for opening an impeachment inquiry when we had issues with emoluments and we had, you know, all kinds of corrupt dealings that could be pointed to. And we had him telling the uh, Russian ambassador and and foreign secretary, you know, don't worry about interfering in the elections. And we had the obstruction of justice claims from Mueller, who basically said to the House, here's your roadmap. But Pelosi is a uh, smart enough, experienced enough, understanding enough of uh, American politics to say that's not going to cut it. Those are too controversial. People are arguing over those already. If you're going to 
open an impeachment inquiry, it really has to be because you believe the president has crossed the line that the founders put in to the Constitution. So when the Ukraine matter came up and the public understood that, like, wait a minute, you're fishing for foreign help against your potential opponent in your reelection campaign, then opening it was understandable and appropriate. So I would certainly give them high marks. Up until now, they've been very careful. I think moving it to the Committee of Jurisdiction over the Ukrainian matter, the Intelligence Committee, was really smart. But you don't see a lot of grandstanding. I mean, you have to keep the public informed to a, a certain extent, and certainly Adam Schiff and a few others are doing that. But there's no rush to judgment. And they're trying to bring the press and the public along. And so far, I, I think they have done a, a really commendable effort. It's interesting. You mentioned grandstanding. Of course, one side of the equation is grandstanding every day. But I'd be curious because you lived, you know, through the Nixon impeachment and were deeply involved in that at a time where it really was, well, the Washington Post most famously, but Washington Post, New York Times, ABC's, CBS, NBC. By the late 90s, you had the entrance of cable. Now we have social media. Mm -hmm. And I guess, how do you think that may change this? Because in a way, to me, I think it's maybe it's not even disputable that, that ultimately what Trump may be guilty of here is far surpasses even what we saw in Watergate. But in a way, it can seem smaller just because we're surrounded by tweets every minute, really. I'm just curious if you have a sense of how the media environment we're in right now may change things. I think you summed it up really well. I think we are in such an information overload world People can't figure out what's important, what's more important than something else. How do I make sense of this? When we had three networks, a couple of major papers, and a lot of other papers. So remember, yes, the, the New York Times, the Washington Post, but you had really good papers across the country from Boston and Baltimore to, you know, L.A. And it was wall-to-wall coverage. You could not escape. You, you couldn't get distracted. You couldn't dive into your own social media feed. You couldn't go down a rabbit hole chasing conspiracy theories. It was the country's business being reported on and presented in a serious, thoughtful way. And we don't have that anymore. We have a really difficult environment to do politics in or to govern in, legislate in, and certainly conduct an impeachment inquiry in. And we have a single network that is a propaganda tool for not just the Trump administration, but the, you know, the point of view, the the kind of elitist, fear-mongering point of view that preceded him, but has been amplified by him with Fox. So I think it's a lot harder for Americans to know what they're supposed to believe. You know, when Walter Cronkite got on your evening news and said, you know, I've been to Vietnam and they're not telling us the truth, people went, whoa, I can't believe it. But Walter Cronkite's telling me that. I remember in the impeachment work I did in 1974, Sam Donaldson, who was, you know, a very prominent correspondent, he would stalk us, trying to get us to talk, to say something. But he had to physically stalk us. You know, he didn't get to stalk us online. You know, he had to actually show up and say, oh, come on, Hillary, talk to us. So it was a much more controllable environment. And now, I think we're living in the age of distraction, and that 
benefits, the less serious, the more anxiety producing or (laughs) conspiracy minded people because they can plant so many seeds so cheaply and easily and they don't have to stand behind it. And Facebook, biggest news purveyor in the world, can say, oh, no, we're we're not interfering. You know, it can be an absolute lie. It can be Nancy Pelosi in a mashup of a deep fake. But, you know, we're going to let people decide. People can't decide because we are conditioned to believe what we see and what we hear when it is delivered to us in what looks like an official way. And that's we now we've got tens of thousands of uh, channels that uh, are doing that. So one of the reasons it's harder is obviously it's not just our domestic campaigns. You and your campaign were harmed by certainly the Trump campaign being open to, I think you could argue, they sought help. Now we have an incumbent president of the United States mm-hmm. Almost seems like he's speed dialing leaders around the world, reports of Australia, the UK. He's mentioned China. Now, of course, the Ukraine issue is what we're uh, really digging in on impeachment. I mean, that's unprecedented. My concern is it's not going to stop. I mean, how concerned are you that what happened in 16, the disinformation, the lies, some suppression, that now you have an incumbent president, well-funded, who's probably more obsessed with re-election than any president we've ever had. And they've all had a passing interest in getting re-elected. Right. <laughs> but clearly putting pressure on our allies. I mean, I'm, do you think there's a chance that they could perfect this in this election cycle? And what do we do about that? I think they are perfecting it as we speak, David. You know, I've told all the candidates I've spoken with, and I've spoken to, I mean, there's so many of them, but I think I've spoken <laughs> to a majority of them. I've said, look, you could run the best campaign. You could have the best plans. You could get the nomination. And you could lose. Because of four factors. Number one, voter suppression and purging. Uh, We need to marry those up because people don't understand the many millions of voters who were purged between 2012 and 2016, and the purging goes on. The theft of material through hacking, cyber warfare, and then the weaponization of that information. The actual propaganda on social media, you know, the phony news studios in Macedonia and Ukraine and St. Petersburg that are pumping phony stories about me dying and Pope Francis endorsing Trump on a, you know, hourly basis. And people believe it because they've been able to get enough data points about enough Americans to be able to profile those who would be vulnerable to hearing these kinds of totally uh, false stories, and then actual interference in the election. You know, we we don't really know to what extent the election was interfered in because nobody will look for it. We do know that in Florida, a lot more happened than has been admitted publicly. A member of Congress, a Democrat from Florida, uh, Stephanie Murphy, wrote a really chilling piece in, uh, I think, the Washington Post, where she said she went with a Republican colleague to be briefed by the FBI, and it was terrifying. And then the FBI said, you can't tell anybody. So we know they, you know, we know Russians were in at least four systems. We know we are really vulnerable. Every, you know, every hackathon that happens, you know, 10-year-olds are hacking our voting systems and the networks that connect them. So we have four big problems. And when we don't have a government that is interested in protecting our elections, It's really hard for any campaign to do that, any national committee or anyone else. So we know from Trump officials, Dan Coats, who used to be the director of national intelligence, being the most prominent, who literally went to the briefing room of the White House and said the Russians are still 
in our election system. We know from the bragging of uh, the Trump campaign, particularly Brad uh, Parscal, that they are spending tens of millions of dollars to harvest even more data to get more information, to manipulate more voters' minds. And we know that they are working with people who were in Cambridge Analytica. We know that there still are contacts with the Russians. We know these things. So we have to assume that since it worked for them, why would they quit? I mean, Donald Trump is Vladimir Putin's dream. <laughs> He said that the biggest catastrophe, I think, in history was the collapse of the Soviet Union. As a former KGB guy, he is intent upon undermining democracies and trying to lay the groundwork for a resurgence of Russian greatness, as he posits. And Donald Trump is delivering that to him on a daily basis. I don't know why exactly. I don't know what Putin has on him, whether... It's both personal and financial, I assume it is. But more than that, there is this bizarre adulation Trump has for dictators and authoritarians. He dreams of being able to order people to do things and make them do it. He has no democratic instincts, really. And I saw that when I was Secretary of State and traveled to 112 countries. One of our big problems were people who got themselves elected— and then became authoritarian, and then did everything they could to rig elections, everything they could to make sure that they were never forced out of power. That is his game plan. That is what he's trying to achieve. And it's terrifying to me because, you know, scholars like uh, Professor Timothy Snyder, who wrote that great little book on tyranny, they've told us what the game plan is. But I still think people have a hard time believing that, David. It's like, really? Oh, come on. You know, that can't really be true. And so part of what we have to do is alert the campaigns, try to protect them, work with people like Eric Holder and others who are trying to protect the voter registration and the actual voting process, try to raise the alarm about the breaches of our election systems, try to stand up against the misinformation, weaponization of information, the propaganda, but they're going to have unlimited money. I think the amount of money that the Trump campaign and the RNC is raising right now uh, will be really hard to compete with. And it's and not that the money... Russians. And, yeah, and the Russians. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that money is everything, but you do have to have enough. And so what I'm seeing is... Microsoft just announced that Iran was messing with somebody's campaign, a Democrat this time. You saw Trump asking for China's help. I made a joke on Rachel Maddow last spring that, you know, a Democrat should just say, China, if you're listening, find Trump's tax <laughs> returns. Our media would richly reward you. I said, where does this end? If every adversary of ours is going to mess with our elections, you know, I think that they did affect the outcome of this past election. But more than that, they sowed so much divisiveness and distrust. And you can't have a democracy that is functioning, making decisions, which we're not right now, if people are so divided and so angry. And we got the left and the right and everybody mad at each other. And that just benefits somebody like Trump and his allies. So you tried to warn us. I did. <laughs> I'm curious, and I think you made this point that, that people don't 
want to fully believe it, although a casual student of history will tell you that umpires are strong till they're not. Mm -hmm. But even as low an expectation that you had of Trump, are you surprised the degree to which, you know, he's calling foreign leaders from the Oval Office, asking them to get involved in his campaign? So as much as you warned us, it seems like this even goes beyond your most wildest nightmares about what was possible. You know, I thought he'd be a bad president, and I thought he'd be, you know, a little out of control. But I didn't, between the election, which, you know, was a devastating surprise, but between the election and the inauguration, I held out hope that, okay, you know, some of the people that he was putting in, the high offices I knew, and I thought, okay, you know, there'll be a good kind of... Con- straining influence. But when I sat there listening to his inaugural speech and the carnage in the street and continuing to divide us, I mean, when you have a close election, a contested election, real leaders try to bring people together. They say, okay, even if you didn't vote for me, I'm going to try to be the best president for you that I can be. And I was sitting there thinking, this is like a declaration of war on half of America. I mean, the kinds of things that he's saying, and then the lying about the size of the inauguration crowd, it just snowballed Mm -hmm. further downward than even I had anticipated. So the corruption, the using the White House to make money to uh, not only for himself, but his family members, his corporate interests, his disregard for the rule of law, his demeaning of institutions, I mean, going after the intelligence community, Defense Department, all that he's done— All of that is really troubling. But this tendency he has to basically give away whatever the other side wants in return for help, financial help, personal help, political help, that's where you just have to draw a line. You know, the founders were really worried about leaders seeking favors from foreign governments. They knew that the British were still fomenting problems and trying to buy people off. And, you know, they had a war of 1812, so that, you know, that became an actual, you know, fighting war because the Brits were still trying to manipulate things. The impeachment provision is meant for exactly the kind of behavior that Trump is engaged in right now. Abuse of power, obstruction of justice, contempt of Congress. But with the added twist of this alliance that he has with these foreign leaders. I was doing an interview the other day, and I was uh, talking about the tragedy of the Kurds and this impulsive decision he made. I mean, if we were going to withdraw troops, you could have a process, try to figure it out. What would be the best way to do it? How would you best secure the Kurds? A lot of tough questions, if that's the direction you wanted to go. But this was all just on the South Lawn. Here's what I'm saying, and here's the tweet to back it up. And I said, so we had a call with Erdogan. How do we know he didn't say to Erdogan, you know what? I'm going to withdraw my troops. You go ahead. Do whatever you want with the Kurds. And by the way, can you help me in my election? We don't know. We have no idea. There has to be something. We know. (laughs) I mean, well, we know the Russians were pushing him to do it. We know the Russians sold defensive military equipment to the Turks. So there's always a a below-the-surface reason why Trump is doing things. And one, it took me a while in the 2016 campaign until I realized everything he accused me of he was doing. I, at first, I thought, this is so crazy and wild. I mean, corrupt? 
I mean, good, you got 40 years of my tax returns and, you know, all the rest of it. What are you talking about? It was always projection. And, you know, now he has taken it to the next level because he wants the help that he knows he got. He's an illegitimate president, and he knows he's an illegitimate president because he knows he got unprecedented help from Russia. They're cut out WikiLeaks, from Cambridge Analytica, you know, from suppression, all the things that, you know, added up to give him those votes that he got. So he understands that at some level of his psyche. Right. But despite that, you know, he's going to double down. Yes, he is. And so I, one question I have for you about this is he's doing all these things, most likely high crimes and misdemeanors, and he's not even faced the voters again for re-election. How worried we, should we be if he wins re-election that all bets are off and there are no boundaries around this guy? It doesn't seem like there are now. But if he doesn't have to face the voters mm-hmm. again in a second term, how dangerous could that be? I think he's done a lot of damage to our country, but I think the damage would be incalculable if he were to serve another term. You know, I know a lot about the State Department. What he has done to the State Department to experienced uh, diplomats who have served for many years under both Democratic and Republican administrations is going to set the State Department back many years because people are not applying to be Foreign Service officers. Experienced ones are quitting Nobody can work in that kind of atmosphere, and it doesn't bother Trump and it doesn't bother Pompeo because they've got different agendas. Trump has a solely personal agenda. If he thought tomorrow becoming you know, pro-choice and anti-gun would get him reelected, he would become pro-choice and anti-gun. He, he doesn't care about anything other than his own personal fortunes. Pompeo is an ideologue, a religious ideologue, along with Barr, who gave this incredibly worrisome speech at Notre Dame, going after secularists and liberals and blaming everything that goes wrong in the world on on people that he labels, they would be able to consolidate their power. So you'd have Trump being, in many ways, the figurehead, the guy, the crazy guy who says anything and does anything. But you would have these other men ensconced in power to take actions that would turn the clock back on so much of what we've achieved in the last years. Getting those two appointees on the Supreme Court, it's not just about abortion or guns. It's about economics. You know, I remember having studied in law school, you know, the time back in the late 19th, early uh, 20th century, when the court was totally in the bed of of corporations. Whatever corporations want, the courts just said, sign me up, here I am. That is the unfortunate cycle that we could be re-entering, and another term of Trump would just nail that down. And it wouldn't be just him. It would be all the others who are doing his bidding, but also their own mission to change the country back. Two more Brett Kavanaugh's potentially. Absolutely. So let's talk about the campaign. I'm not going to ask you to handicap the primary <laughs> campaign unless you'd like to, but but this ultimately, the debates and the mm-hmm. campaign themselves are about who's going to be um, squared off on the stage with him. And you're the only person in the world who has that experience. So I'm just curious. One of the things I reflect on in 16 is I think by any objective measure, you won the big moments. You had I a better did. convention. You won yeah. all three debates. But the national news spent 32 minutes total in the whole campaign covering policy. Right. He, you know, lies and tweets and sort of dominates the auction in a way we haven't seen before. We talked about social media. And he's, in, in a way, for all of his craziness, has sort of perfected that art. So 
how do you have any advice for someone whoever comes out of our primary? How do they deal with that? Like, even if they win the debates and they have a great convention and get a great VP, those big moments, which are undeniably important, the day-to-day execution of the campaign against him seems really difficult. It is really difficult um, because he knows that if he can keep the spotlight on him, no other voice will break through. So it's not only that uh, he's doing things that seem disqualifying, at least in you know my view, he just cares how much airtime he gets. He just cares how dominant he is in people's living rooms and their earbuds and all that he is counting on. And he knows that he's not going to lose his hardcore. His hardcore is with him no matter what. They like the fact that he insults people. They like the fact that he's rude. They like all of that. I, I think it's, you know, their own frustrations, but however one explains it, it has very little to do with economic anxiety and a lot to do with cultural anxiety. And so they are very much behind him. And then you've got the religious element and you've got religious, so-called religious leaders saying things like, well, he's not a religious man, but he's protecting what we care about. And, you know, that's abortion, for example, trying to push the clock back against gays. Uh, You don't have to bake them a wedding cake. You don't have to hire them. You can fire them. All the things that the religious right wants, which he is trying to deliver because they're a loyal uh, voting bloc. So I think that it's going to be hard, no matter who our nominee is, to break through. And there's going to be the below-the-radar screen battle being fought out, as we talked earlier, online in particular, that will be hard for us to compete with. So I, I think you've got to have the grit and the toughness to be able to go day after day pushing in as emotional and positively delivered way that you can what it is that he will do that's bad for the voter, the promises he made that he has not kept, the dangers that he's put our country in, while you're still trying to, on the separate parallel channel, talk about what you would do. It's a really difficult balancing act. And what he's counting on is that whoever our nominee is will have made some promises in the primary, taken some positions that they will be able to blow up Mm -hmm. out of all proportion to beat that person. Because what they'll try to do is say, you know, I may be bad. In fact, I am bad and I admit it and I love it. And so just live with it. But this other person is going to take your insurance away. And this other person is going to give health care to illegal immigrants. And this other person is going to take your gun away. And, you know, I mean, the whole, you know, panoply of horrors and try to piece together Getting back some of those suburban voters, particularly women suburban voters, Republicans and independents who went for Democrats in 2018. So that's how they see this. And they're also going to force the Democratic nominee to defend places that should not have to be defended. So watch what happens in Oregon. Watch what happens in Colorado. Watch what happens in New Mexico. They've been pretty open that, you know, those are places they're going after and New Hampshire. And so, you know, they're going to have more money than they can possibly ever spend. And they're going to really put financial pressure on whoever our our nominee is. And they're already kind of boiling the waters. You know, look at 
Oregon in particular, everybody thinks it's a very reliable blue state. And our big advantage in Oregon is they vote by mail. So it's really hard to suppress it, really hard to tinker with it. But they are also stirring up a lot of, you know, cultural antipathy toward the Democratic Party. And I don't think they'll be successful, but they're going to spend money there and they're going to force our nominee to spend money there, which will be harder to come by for our nominee. So I just think that they have a game plan. And you know, as well as anybody, that you get the nomination when you're a Democrat and then you basically have to get a game plan for the general election. When I became the nominee, I inherited a bankrupt organization and Donald Trump inherited a well-funded, well-prepared organization. The day he got the nomination, having done nothing for Republicans his entire campaign, was a day that he already ha- there already were, you know, like 21 offices in Florida. I had to do all of that. There was nothing. I had nothing. And so from my perspective, I think we'll be a little better off than we were back then, but we're going to be outgunned outspent, outlied. I mean, we're going to have a lot of problems. And the thing we have to do is get enough people to turn out so that they can't, you know, steal those votes through suppression in Wisconsin or convince blacks not to vote in Michigan, all the stuff that they did this last time, which was very effective and the Russians played a big role in. Right. And they'll double down on this time. No. And, and you know, Trump had those advantages, but he was not an incumbent. So as we know, whether it's Ronald Reagan, your right. husband, Barack Obama, those first 18 months of the election cycle were as important as the last six months. I think That's that right. should give us pause. So one, it's, it's connected to the discussion we just had and actually about social media earlier in our discussion. You know, Donald Trump, as you know better than anyone in the world, only got 46.1% of the vote nationally. You know, he got 47.2 in Wisconsin, 47.7 in Michigan. If you had said those before the election, you would have said he's going to lose in a landslide. But one of the reasons he was able to win is the third-party vote. Right. And what's clear to me, you mentioned, you know, he's going to just lie. I mean, you forgot. He's going to say whoever our nominee is will ban hamburgers and steaks. And you can't fly and infanticide. And people believe this. So how concerned are you about that? For me, so much of this does come down to the win number. If he has to get 49 or even 49.5 in a bunch of these, I don't think he can. So he's going to try and drive at people not to vote for him, but just to say, you know, you can't vote for them either. And that seems to be, I think, to the extent that I can divine a strategy, their key strategy right now. Well, I think there's going to be two parts, and I think it's going to be the same as 2016. Don't vote for the other guy. You don't like me? Don't vote for the other guy, because the other guy's going to do X, Y, and Z, or the other guy did such terrible things. And I'm going to show you in these, you know, flashing videos that appear and then disappear, and they're on the dark web, and nobody can find them. But you're going to see them, and you're going to see that person doing these horrible things. They're also going to do third party again. And I'm not making any predictions, but I think they've got their eye on somebody who's currently in the Democratic (laughs) primary and are grooming her to be the third party candidate. She's the favorite of the Russians. They have a bunch of sites and bots and other ways of supporting her Mm -hmm. so far. And that's assuming Jill Stein will give it up, which she might not because she's also a Russian uh, asset. Yeah, Yeah, she's a Russian asset. I mean, totally. And so they know they can't win without a third party candidate. And so I don't know who it's going to be, but I will guarantee you they'll have a vigorous third party challenge in the key states that they most need it. (laughs) 
so we're speaking the day of another Democratic debate. I think mm-hmm. 12 people on the stage tonight. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, you excelled at debates, mm. both in 08 and in 16. But despite that, so that was a natural event for you. I don't think people understand what a burden it is. Oh. I just from like a candidate perspective, I think it'd be interesting for people to hear like, it's not like the world stops or the campaign stops. No. But you have these big moments, like just from a candidate perspective, and you've got your team jawing in your ear, not making mm-hmm. any sense probably half the time, uh, if my experience was any guide. <laughs> and so what's that like for you as someone who's prosecuting a presidential campaign? And I think people just assume like, well, you're out there talking every day and, you know, you just sort of build a few hours to get to the debate stage, but it's hard. It's really hard. And I can't even remember how many debates we had in 08. The number 24. I think 24. about 1,000. Yeah, yeah. It's not like 1,000. I think 24. <laughs> I mean, it was, every time you turned around, we were having a debate. And I think we started off with, what, 10 people on the yeah, stage? So uh, we know what that's like. You know, debates are always high-profile, tightrope acts because – if you make a mistake, it can be devastating. And the history of debates shows a lot of candidacies ending because somebody made a mistake. If you do really well, you can breathe easily, but that doesn't necessarily translate into victory. You have to keep doing well and you have to build on it. You know, I always took debates seriously because uh, I was the only woman on the stage in, in both 08 and, and 2016. And I just knew that I'd be under much more scrutiny there was literally no room for me to make a mistake, to misspeak in any way without being hammered, hammered. So I, you know, I did. I really, you know, prepared. I thought a lot about it. But, you know, the debates, both in the primary and in the general election in 2016, were not as substantive as the primary debates in 2008. You know, Barack and I had a real disagreement about health care. We both wanted it, but we had a dis- disagreement about how to get there. And so you had a substantive debate where people could see differences. I don't know whether it's because the people conducting the debates uh, were not as well informed or didn't prepare well enough, but I didn't feel like in either the primary or the general election. You know, I kept thinking, part of the reason I spent so much time hammering out my policy for 2016 is I really expected a moment. Like I remember from debates past debates, my husband was in debates even before and after where an interviewer would say, well, okay, explain how that will work. What will the tax rate be? Where will you get the rep? I expected to finally be put to my paces. I'd have to explain my policies. That never happened. It was all, it was so superficial, top water. And, you know, it's like in the debate when I said that Trump was, you know, Putin's puppet. No puppet, no puppet. You're the puppet. Now, a seasoned interviewer would say, just a minute, Mr. Trump. She's just made a serious charge against you. And you need to answer that. This is about the future of our country. None of that happened. So, I don't quite know how to evaluate what's going to happen in these debates because they're not really, I I don't think, at the level that they need to be to help sort out the people who are on that stage. Maybe tonight will be uh, different, but having 12 on the stage is a little bit challenging. But you still have to prepare for them. You still have to, you have to prepare for them if you think it's going to be a serious endeavor. Trump didn't compare. He prepared for them. He sat at his country club in New Jersey with Rudy Giuliani and a few people. And they just traded insults, you know, like, oh, and then call her this and then oh, say that. Because he understood that the press was still paralyzed. They were incapable 
of dealing with him. So call me names, do whatever he do. He would not pay a price for it. And unfortunately, whoever does the debates this next time is sure going to have to be better than they were last time. For sure. So again, asking you to speak as a practitioner, you mentioned in 08, I think we started with nine or 10. Yeah. Eventually got down to you and Barack Obama. Right. In 16, you started with a bigger stage, you and Bernie, and then obviously you and Trump. It seems to me from a candidate perspective, when it's just a two-person debate, you're kind of in an athletic posture the whole time because you really know you're going to speak again in 90 seconds. And how do you handle being on a stage with all these people and not kind of fall asleep and, yeah. and stay tuned in? I mean, it's got to be incredibly hard because you could go 10 or 15 minutes between saying anything. Well, you you know, but you also have to assume in your phrase, you know, an athletic posture because you don't know when it's coming at you. And when we were on that stage in 2008, there were some really experienced uh, candidates, you know, not only Joe Biden, but, you know, Chris Dodd and Bill Richardson, mm-hmm. people who had won statewide races. They were, you know, smart. They were certainly uh, able to hold their own. So you had to be alert the whole time and you had to know, you know, who was going to come after you or who was going to be asking the question. But when the debates are that big, it's really moderator driven because they get to decide, you know, you don't know who's going to be next and how much time you're going to have. Whereas if it's just the two of you, it's a, it's a much more manageable format. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see tonight, you know, how the moderators divide up the time and how the candidates seize time because you can't wait to be asked. You've got to assert yourself and be part of the debate if it's in an area that you want to highlight. So you have to stay alert. Yeah. So you've written a remarkable book with Chelsea um, about, you know, gutsy women through history who've Mm -hmm. made such a big difference. You, of course, are one of those gutsy women, and you you almost shattered the hardest glass ceiling in America twice. Mm -hmm. And what strikes me is, you know, as we had, you know, we're kind of 20% of the way through the 21st century, that misogyny is stronger than I think we might have realized, that Mm -hmm. that by now um, you would have thought that that was definitely receding into— history. And it seems to me that it may be easier for a man to win the presidency, no matter their, you know, sexual orientation or ethnicity. I think the resistance out there to a woman president is stronger than than I certainly believe to be the case. Maybe we'll break it this time. But have you reflected on that? Yes, I have, because it was surprising. I mean, I obviously saw it, uh, felt it, But I still found it hard to believe uh, that there was a significant percentage of voters in both parties who would find it difficult to vote for a woman for president. They might vote for a woman for senator, maybe even governor, but not president. So I, I was surprised by that. And what I think is different this time is that we have a name for it. It can be called out. People who are engaging in it can be you know, held accountable. But it doesn't erase the feelings that people have about who's an appropriate president, what does a president look like, how does a president act. And it's something that I hope can be broken. I mean, the good news is when I ran uh, in 2016, there were more American women in space, because <laughs> there were two, than there were running for president. And this time around, uh, at one point, we had enough women for a basketball team. So, you know, that's <laughs> progress. But I think that a lot of the stereotyping and caricaturizing that comes from that deep well of uh, 
resistance to a woman president is still with us. And do you think that, is this the last gasp of the white male patriarchy, or are we 20, 24 years from now still going to be dealing with this resistance in America? Well, I think actually there is a backlash to women's progress going on. I think that the defenders of Trump and all of his behaviors are defending the patriarchy without really maybe saying that. I think the religious right, a lot of their positioning is about women being independent and autonomous and making their own decisions and making their own living. And so I I fear that we're caught in a bit of a crossfire here where a lot of young women, particularly, and young men, you know, expect to keep pushing forward, make this progress, you know, get rid of all of these obstacles. But there is this pushback. Uh, that is pretty strong right now. So I don't know exactly how it's going to play out. I'm hoping that sooner instead of later, but it's a much more complicated calculus than I would have thought. So thank you for spending so much time with us. I just have one last question. I think it's really important and clearly authentic, your sobriety around how hard it's going to be to be Donald Trump, because you've seen it up close. And I think sometimes I think folks in our party, they just believe he can't be reelected again. They see his polls, but we know this is going to be a battle. So there's so many Americans who work so hard for your election, worked for the amazing candidates in 18, worked for President Obama. What's your message to them about their... I actually think responsibility to make sure this is a one-term nightmare, not a two-term nightmare. What what can the average person do out there to make sure we beat this guy? Well, I think that's exactly the right question. And I think first and foremost, just be determined you're going to vote. I mean, I don't care what the argument against your voting or the effort to try to convince you uh, to turn your back on both, you know, the lesser of two evils argument or whatever it might be. Don't buy it. It is meant to keep Trump in power. This is not complicated. If we get enough people to turn out and vote, he will be retired. But if our people who oftentimes are seeking the perfect as opposed to the good enough, get in the frame of mind that, you know, they can't vote for, you know, candidate X who the Democrats have nominated because that person, you know, wasn't perfect on whatever the scorecard might be. We will hand that election to Donald Trump. So get involved, speak out, get your friends and family to get registered to vote. After you register, make sure that it counted and you're really in the voter registration rolls and just be determined that you're not going to be fooled. You know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on us, right? And he fooled us last time. He fooled all of us and he had a lot of help fooling us. And so don't be fooled. And your best way of making sure he doesn't continue to undermine our values and our institutions and the rule of law and our country's future is to be sure you vote and make your vote counted. There's a lot of other things you can do if you're so inclined to get involved, maybe run yourself, all the things that are part of being an active participant in politics, supporting your candidate of your choice. But when it comes down to it, nothing beats voting. And I just want to end with this one little story. So Ohio's been one of the main purgers of votes since 2012. They have purged millions of voters, and they're up to it again. But they picked some of the wrong people to purge because the woman who happened to be the president of the League of Women Voters in Ohio decided for the purpose of her 
organization to see how this purging thing works. So she was going to check on a few names, including her own. And she found out she'd been purged. And they claimed she'd been inactive. And this is a woman who never misses an election. She had voted three times in the last two years at, you know, state and local levels. And she basically said, you know, if they can do it to me, they'll do it to anybody. Because they are trying to, you know, shape the electorate to support Republicans and ultimately Donald Trump. And we cannot let that happen. So get involved in voter protection. Go to your county or your city or your state election board. Make sure that they are not disenfranchising people. Don't let them do it to young people. Don't let them do it to, you know, African-Americans or Latino people. Don't let them do it to the elderly. Don't let them do it to anybody. So become an active citizen and an absolute reliable voter. No, I think it's on us. I was reflecting on your race in 16 and the difficulty of really dealing with Trump in that circus and getting your positive message out. And I just reflected on my own personal social media behavior. I don't think I shared any positive plan from you. It was all the latest Trump outrage. And I think we, we can't assume that the candidate or the campaign, strong as we hope they are, you know, can do this on their own. Right. Um, we, we don't have the Russians. We don't have Fox. But we have us. And there's it's, more of us than them. That, and there are more of us than them if we vote. And if we use our own social media accounts to not only put forth uh, the arguments against some of the uh, wrongheaded stuff that the other side's putting out, but the positive arguments that are there to be made on behalf of whoever our candidate is. Hillary Clinton, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, David. So that was an absolutely fascinating conversation with Hillary Clinton. I think, you know, some of the headlines coming out of it may be her belief that Tulsi Gabbard is going to be a third-party candidate propped up by Trump and and the Russians. Um, so uh, I'm sure Tulsi Gabbard will get pressed on that. I think it was really sobering to hear from Hillary Clinton how tough she thinks it's going to be to be Donald Trump. He's an incumbent. He's got all those advantages. He's going to have all the money in the world. He's going to put pressure on our Democratic nominee to defend traditionally blue states. He's going to have more foreign interference this time. But we all have to belly up to the bar and understand that this is going to be a really, really hard campaign. I think fascinating to hear her talk about impeachment and um, her belief that, you know, the difference between how impeachment was handled in the 70s uh, in the Nixon inquiry in the late 90s by Clinton was night and day uh, and really believes that the House Democrats should approach this more like the House Judiciary Committee and, and Democratic leadership did in the early 70s, kind of just the facts. It uh, doesn't seem to hold out much hope that there's going to be Republicans supporting impeachment, but uh, we'll have to watch and see that. And, you know, I think just really um, incredibly interesting comments about, you know, what's it like to prepare for a debate and, and how you fit that in amidst all the other things going on in the campaign in the world. So we really appreciated time with, with Hillary Clinton, our Democratic nominee last time, who's probably watching this race as closely as, as anyone imaginable, hoping that uh, Donald Trump's tenure is four years and not eight the other big event we had this week in the race was the debate, of course. Uh, we had 12 people on stage on Tuesday, probably all still sorting through what, if anything, it means in terms of any adjustment in the race. Um, I think a lot of times these debates are viewed to be more important than they are in terms of changing trajectories of the race overnight. But a few things jumped out to me. One, um, we talked about this last week. Elizabeth Warren now is at least the co-frontrunner with Joe Biden, if, if not the frontrunner. And You'd much rather have that momentum than not, but but you're going to get put under the microscope. And, and we saw that for the first time. She really was the focus of most of the contrast and attacks uh, from the rest of the field. 
think the most meaningful exchange was the one with uh, Mayor Pete on health care. And I think that is, I've, I've talked to all my guests about this issue to date, and I think this is going to drive a lot of the close of the campaign because, you know, this is probably the most obvious flashpoint where you have distinction. Um, and I think Mayor Pete was pretty effective. I mean, the truth is, if you believe polling, there are a lot more Democrats who are going to vote in the primary and caucuses who do not want to move to Medicare for all right away than do. So we're not even talking about the general election. So I'd imagine we're going to see that move from the debate stage to computers and telephones and televisions and radios and, and town halls pretty soon. Um, Joe Biden obviously w- was asked the, the predictable question around Ukraine and Hunter Biden thought he handled that well. But it was also evidence that, uh, you know, he's not uh, the shining front runner anymore. So he was less a focus. I think, you know, for me, you know, the great winnowing should hopefully happen soon because um, we really need to see how these people are going to compete when it's down to three, four or five candidates and ultimately two, because that's really the only way you can get the measure of who might have what it takes to best Donald Trump on the debate stage. So I'm very eager for that. You know, I think in a couple of weeks here, we enter what I consider to be finally uh, the major league uh, schedule portion of the race. (laughs) We have, it used to be called the Iowa JJ Dinner, historically a massively important event in Iowa where thousands and thousands of Democrats attend uh, to hear all the candidates speak. It's a big organizational test. All the campaigns try to get supporters out there and a lot of energy. The name's been changed. Um, I think now it's called the Liberty and Justice Celebration. I was reflecting on that. Actually, if I were the Iowa Democratic Party, I used to be an employee of the Iowa Democratic Party, I would change it to the Carter-Obama dinner because those are two candidates who really leveraged Iowa caucus victories to the presidency. But uh, we'll see if they if they have any interest in that uh, in future years. So, so November 1st is that big dinner in Iowa. All the candidates will be on stage. They can't use teleprompters. They have to speak off the cuff. And, you know, that event has historically been really important, both in terms of the people in the crowd and and most of the people who attend the Iowa caucuses are going to see clips of those speeches. And if somebody really outshines the rest in a big field like this, it can make a big difference. And also to see what kind of organization folks can put together. Can they get people to come to Des Moines, which is the middle of the state? So you've got people have to drive four or five hours in some cases to be there. So incredibly important test of organization. In the Obama campaign in 2007, this was a critical moment for us and, and really provided us, I think, for the first time the kind of acceleration of momentum we needed uh, to win the Iowa caucuses. So really from November 1st until the Iowa caucuses is about a three-month period. So things are going to start to get real, real fast. And I think that, um, you know, we're going to see in Iowa, I think in particular, you're going to continue to see polling that suggests that, you know, there's movement there that you don't see nationally. So all of you listening who are very interested in who our nominee is, Uh, and therefore have to be interested in how folks uh, perform in Iowa, it'll be on television. I don't know if it'll be on C-SPAN or it'll be on MSNBC or or it'll be, uh, you know, live stream. We'll let you know next week. But it's really a a great thing to tune into because it's different than debates. Um, And it's not like a rally where you can speak for 45 minutes. The candidates actually have a pretty short period of time. So can they condense their argument in a way that's powerful and motivational and inspirational? And in this case, you really want to come out of it being judged to have done the best job of that in your speech and also to have shown the organizational prowess. So, you know, I think as as you look in the coming weeks, we're going to have another debate in November. I happen to think that the Iowa dinner on November 1st will actually be more important than the next debate. So uh, I would urge you to pay attention to that uh, and take in 
some of the proceedings if you can. Uh, next week, we're actually going to go deep into delegates. So we're going to have wh- who I consider the, the preeminent delegate expert in the United States, Jeff Berman, who was uh, you know my delegate director uh, in the 2008 campaign. He is spending some time helping Beto O'Rourke, but we're going to, for this episode, ask him to take his, his Beto hat off and just really take all of you to school about delegates. So in sports, in football, it's not how many yards you gain, it's how many points you score. In baseball, it's how many hits you have, how many runs you score. In the presidential general election, it's not how many votes you get nationally, it's whether you win 270 electoral votes in the Electoral College. And in our primary process, it's not about how many states you win or how many votes you get, it's how many delegates you get. And we're going to simplify it for you. It can seem like a Byzantine process, but if you are interested in this Democratic nomination fight and really want to understand why candidates are making the decisions they're making and who might have a better path uh, to the nomination than another candidate, even though that might not be apparent through things like polls, we're going to get deep into that because every decision a campaign should make, allocation of dollars, allocation of staff, allocation of candidate time, should be done through the prism of delicate acquisition. So um, I'm really excited about that episode, and hopefully you'll leave it better informed about how we select our Democratic nominee and the person who will face off against Donald Trump. So we'll talk to you next week. 